You are now listening to the February 2nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. everyone, this is Susan Holtgrew, your host for the Attributes of God program series. There is a saying that is popular among Christians, and it goes like this, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. But what exactly does it mean that God is good? First, let us take a look at the word good. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is tov, And Strong's definition for tov is to be good, be pleasing, be joyful, be beneficial, be pleasant, be favorable, be happy, be right. Good is used in 603 verses of the New American Standard Version of the Bible, and tov is used 36 times in the Old Testament. Good is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, where God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. To God, the light was pleasing, joyful, and beneficial. In Esther chapter 1, verse 10, Tov is used as Mary, where it is written, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. And in verse 19, Tov is used as pleases. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him. Now let's move to the New Testament. According to Vine's Expository Dictionary, there are two Greek definitions of the word good. They are kalos and agathos. Kalos means good as in fair, beautiful, or productive. As in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10, where John, the baptizer, said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Agathos describes that which is good in its character or constitution and is beneficial in its effect, but also in a moral sense, and as Vine's Dictionary states, God is essentially, absolutely, and consummately good. In Luke chapter 18, verses 18 and 19, Jesus was asked by the rich young ruler, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. God is good in his character and moral sense, and the effect is beneficial to us all. God also demands us Christians to be good, to be morally honorable, pleasing to him, and therefore beneficial. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul writes, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
We are to cling to goodness, as Paul writes in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. We are to work at goodness, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And we are to imitate goodness, as John writes in his third letter in verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. And so, to restate the sentence I used at the beginning of this program, God is essentially, absolutely, and consummately good in his character and moral sense with the effect that is beneficial to us all the time. And all the time, God is essentially, absolutely, consummately good in his character and moral sense with the effect that is beneficial to us. May we be found morally honorable, pleasing to God, and therefore beneficial in all that we think, say, and do. In another word, good. Until next time, God bless you, and goodbye.
Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delph and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delph and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Last week, we heard a great conversation on two things. Number one, what the basis or the foundation of trust really is. And number two, the difference between our own experience and experiencing life through the Word of God. And on today's podcast, we're going to look at the spiritual power of trust. We're also going to touch on how to avoid trust traps. And number three, how and why the Holy Spirit is the one who only gives real power. All this material that we're discussing today comes from a book titled Learning How to Trust. Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delph, are authors of this book. And the podcast is simply an in-depth conversation so that you can apply these principles to your own life. Let's get started with today's podcast of Walking Our Talk. So as we continue our conversation here on on trusting God and, and trust in general, Alan, there's a lot of things that Scripture says about the power that comes with that. Can you say more? Yeah, I mean, certainly Jesus, when he left this earth, he said, uh, wait in Jerusalem to the disciples and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You know, we can't emphasize enough that it's the Holy Spirit that is the dunamis, the, the power, that he's the one that will give us the ability to get out of these ensnarements that the trust traps uh, have in our lives. Colossians 3, 14 says, Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Ha! When was the last time you saw perfect harmony uh, in your church uh, elder board? Uh, we'll go on from that. But um, And let the peace that comes from Christ. I think that's the key. Unity and peace comes through and from Christ and the power that he gives us, that he gives us the power to have that unity because one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Whether you know him or not, it doesn't make any difference. He, everything is going to be summed up through his power. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all wisdom that he gives. Sing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs to God with thankfulness in your heart. And whatever you do, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. If we allow the power of the Holy Spirit to inculcate our lives, 
He will produce unity, peace, and a church that is faithful and people that are faithful. And so as I trust him to do that by faith, I mean, faith comes by hearing, but it's not just by hearing, you know, just one little sermonette. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, and, and then those things that Ed talked about in the other podcast about memorizing, meditating, reading it not just to say, I checked my box. That's what I'll ask somebody. I'll say, so how's your quiet time? Oh, it was great. What did you learn? It gets them every time, doesn't it, Alan? <laughs> it just gets there, they just look what at you. What did you learn? Oh, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, so I'm not trying to be a gotcha. Yeah. I'm just saying... Yeah. The Word of God is powerful to change your life. Is your life changing? If there's no life change, if there's no fruit, then why are we even reading it? And so it has to penetrate your heart. And trust releases power as I trust in the object of my faith, which is God, not me, not what I want, not a rabbit's foot. It's trusting in God, the hope of glory. That's, that's who I need to trust in. And power is released. I mean, a lot of people struggle with, you know, well, I don't know if I want to read the Word of God. You know, I, mm-hmm. I mean, what authority does that have? What, you know, what credibility does that have? And I understand that. That makes sense. But you see, you know what God's doing from up there? I mean, he gave this to us as healing to mm-hmm. us. And, you know, every time, if you're feeling that way, what good would this do? I want you to know God gets excited when you say that. If you believe the Word of God, even though you're thinking that, if you turn around and do that, you know what that is? That's a sacrifice. God's saying, oh, good. It's like, it's like praise is a sacrifice. Mm. Offer up the praises, you know, like we bring the sacrifice of praise. You know, when you don't feel like praising, that's the time. God loves that. When you don't feel like praising and you praise the Lord anyway, that, you know, you know why God loves it? Because it's a sacrifice. Right. And that sacrifice releases spiritual power. And the greater the praise, the greater the power. Prayer is the spiritual power. The sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart. You see, a broken and contrite heart, putting down your pride, putting down your self-assessment, putting down blaming God or blaming others. God loves that because when you have, you get to that low point, that point where all of a sudden you've hit bottom, and that's where you discover God lives, and all of a sudden that broken, contrite heart, you know what it does for you? It releases spiritual power into your life, and all of a sudden things that were just information before will become revelation, and they can spur you on then to make the correct changes and start to see it. You don't just have information. You've got an aha. Yeah, you know, well, I just think how in our culture, the word sacrifice just has such negative connotations. You know, in baseball, a person uh, hits a sacrifice fly ball so that uh, the next runner can advance because that, you know, the person that hit that ball is going to be out. So, you know, he made a sacrifice and he's out and he's done. And when we sacrifice something, we think of it as something that's just ripped up and dead and there's no reward in it. It's something that we've given up and put to death. In scripture, as believers, we see that the sacrifices that we make actually result in God's blessing and God's power being extended to us. So when we 
trust God, it's giving up trusting in ourselves exactly. or trusting in some other worldly thing that has no true power. We give that up and God's true power then can be released in our lives. Well, and look at Abraham. I mean, God asked him to do something. Every time I read that, I go, wow, would I do this? This doesn't sound like God. Give up your only son, and you're supposed to be a, have many people and a nation, and, but give up the thing that's going to allow you to have that. And he was obedient, and then God provided a sacrifice. But it, it get, Abraham had to give up everything that he thought was going to produce fruit. Mm-hmm. to get the fruit that he thought he was going to get. And I think that's where we stumble. When God says, I want you to lay down this great thing that you feel so good about, and there's nothing wrong with having a God speak to you, and you, you hear him, and you go, oh, this is what you want me to do. And you start walking that way, and then all of a sudden he says, stop. I remember when... Uh, I got through a two-year depression because of the loss of our son. Uh, Not only because of that, there were a whole bunch of things going on, but I couldn't think. I I wasn't sure I was going to work again, and I was finally coming out of it. And I remember, God, I think you want me to be a pastor and go to a church and be a pastor of a church. And I talked to all these people. I've been in the Valley for 37 years. And I talked to all these friends who know all these people, and I applied to 40 different churches, and one said yes, and I thought, oh, that's it! And then halfway through, they said, oh, no, no, that's not going to work. And so it was like I gave up my dream. Um, Bill Gothard used to say, you have the death of a vision. So I had a vision of what I thought God wanted, and then he, like, cut me off at the legs. I'm going, God, I'm faithful. I'm getting out of this depression. Isn't it time for you to bless me? And he's going, not yet. (laughs) And so it was very clear that I wasn't to be a pastor because I did everything in my power with everyone who had the power to give me a job uh, to, to fulfill what I thought was my calling. And he just said, no. And so I needed to trust him in the no and trust him that, okay, God, I will give up and sacrifice my will for your will to have your will done. I think about how uh, the word says about Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, and that the sacrifice that he made resulted in the entire kingdom of God being a blessing for the rest of eternity. Absolutely. It's, I mean, this is the essence of Jesus. Jesus willingly gave up something, and look what he got. He got a huge harvest. Um, that, you know, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so we can exalt you. It's our job to humble ourselves. It's God's job to exalt us. Usually, we try and do God's job, which is to exalt ourselves, <laughs> right. and then yeah. he has to humble us. Yeah, okay, so, yeah. But you see, I love it because when you humble yourself, it releases the power for exaltation. Give and it shall be what? Given back to you, pressed down, shaken together. When you give that that giving that offering of give, giving, then what's it do? It just releases the power for more. He pours out a blessing until there's more need. Now let me take a little time and it may come in different ways than we thought. 
but it just always works. The idea is to do the very thing you don't want to do. The, that's called a sacrifice. Do the very thing. If you don't want to read the Word of God, you know what God says? Good. Now read it. Because this time when you read it, it'll be a sacrifice. I, you know, I, I'll tell you, Polly, I don't believe God listens to intercessors at all. It's too easy for them to pray. It's not a sacrifice when they pray. When somebody like me who struggles with prayer starts praying, God goes, oh, yeah, I'm digging this now. I'm liking this. This guy's really, he means business. You, you see, I'm just being facetious here, okay? You, I think you get yeah, the don't message. Get, don't, don't write any letters, please. One of the uh, other points that we make in, in this chapter is that trusting God releases his blessings and goodness to you and psalm thirty-one, nineteen says oh how great is thy goodness which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men so when we trust in god it releases his goodness and his his blessing in our life it says how blessed is the man who trusts in you in psalms 84 so we that as we trust in God, we receive his blessing. We receive his goodness. And it's a promise. And it, yeah, it's his design. And there's nothing that we did to earn it or make it happen. It's about God putting his blessing. But think of the opposite, Polly. Mm-hmm. Think of it if you don't, how do you say it, trust God. Think the opposite, what it does to you. It puts you on that situation of a hold situation, which, by the way, is exactly where the enemy wants you. That's right, Um, right. You're stuck. Again, it's that whole idea of being stuck. And so you're in this continuous loop. So as you give up that thing, as you uh, give up that opinion of what happened, you say, okay, God, I'm giving it to you. You sort it out. I want to go on in my life. Yeah. We've been singing a song uh, at church, You Are Good, You Are Good, oh. And, it, you know, it sounds, oh, this is so simple. You are good, you are good, <laughs> oh. It's like something you'd read in, like in your first grade uh, reading book. But it's so true. It's so basic. God is good. And it's a fact of who he is. And when we say, God, I believe that you are good, even when I'm going through a horrible pain and trial in my life, then God's blessing is released in our lives. Can you do this when uh, trusting God releases victory in your life by establishing you in the conflicts? And this story in the Old Testament about Jehoshaphat, I think, is really helpful where He's in a situation, he calls for a fast, and in verse 3 he, of Second Chronicles 23, he says, He turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. Mm-hmm. So my question is, when was the last time you fasted for the problem that you have in front of you? Here, if a king thought it important for all his people and declared a fast. And then says, during the ensuing prayer rally, Jehoshaphat cried out to God, reminding him of his promises and his faithfulness in the past. And then one of the Levites, a tribe that had been set apart by God to serve him in his temple, was inspired by God to proclaim that God was promising them victory. Filled with gratitude, Jehoshaphat fell on his face and worshiped. Early the next morning, Jehoshaphat 
acted on his faith, led his army out to face their enemies. And here's what the scripture says. He stood and said, listen to me, O Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. And when they began singing and praising, such an important thing. If you can't get into the word, if you can't hear the word, if you can't activate the word, turn up your worship. Turn up songs of deliverance and praising the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. How would you like to see the enemy routed in your life? Put your trust in God. You know, when we talk about the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and what does that look like? What kind of power comes from what he did on that cross? Well, just look at it. When Jesus gave himself up, when he voluntarily gave himself up for that sacrifice, it released so much spiritual power that the earth shook, the rock shook, people who were in graves came out of graves. Hmm. The guy who was crucifying him got saved. Uh, are, you, are you with me? This is Korean. Yeah. I mean, it really, see, I just, this, this is the essence. This is everything we're trying to get to here, is to do the very thing you don't want to do. Let go of the banana, as we said in the <laughs> earlier one. Mm-hmm. You see, in doing that, just as Jesus had to let go of the banana, when he let go of the banana, he experienced the freedom that God gave him a hundred times more than what he ever had. So sacrifice releases spiritual power, and the greater the sacrifice, the greater the power. Fasting, Allie just mentioned fasting. In the Bible, fasting is called a sacrifice. Celibacy is called a sacrifice. That releases spiritual power. If you're called to that, God will give you the power to do that. And you'll enjoy it. I don't enjoy that, so I, I have, don't well, give that sacrifice. Behave yourself, Alan. All right, sorry. Behave yourself. But, but really, see, all of this is the, it's uh, to save your life, you have to lose it. Lose it. Mm-hmm. And that's that, this whole interesting paradigm, a seed a kernel of corn must decay, go into the ground decay, but then it springs up as new life. And that's that, if, the, if that's you out there, if that, you know, you're finally getting ready to deal with whatever this thing is. Maybe it's divorce. Maybe it's anorexia. Maybe all the different things that we've talked about. Maybe it's you feel ashamed. Maybe you feel left out. Maybe you feel rejected. When you're to that point, when you're ready to let that kernel fall into the ground and let it die, that's the point at which new life will come up. And for you, some of you could say, well, I could never do that. I could never forgive. I want you to know that, you know what God's saying when you say that? Oh, good. Because when you do forgive, it will be a sacrifice. And I'll not just cover the sin. I'll put it away. It's gone. So I think one of the barriers that we have are the lies that the liar keeps perpetrating that God won't forgive, that God won't release you, that you really don't have, look at you. You say you're a pastor, but you're yelling at your kids when you just went out the door and you're supposed to preach a message. I I just can't tell you how many times I had a, a, a mutual friend of 
ours, Ed, called me one time and he said, could you do this marriage retreat? Because every time we do a marriage retreat, we get into a horrendous mm-hmm. fight and we feel like we're going to separate. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. could you please take it? And I said, sure. I, you know, we, we start praying a month before and know that you know, the week before, there's all hell is going to break loose. And so uh, if, if you can have a strategy to de- defeat the lies of the enemy before you get in that situation. So many of us react, and what he, God's word says, stand firm, hold up your shield of faith, and it will extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one. And if we can be proactive instead of reactive, and if we can stand firm and, and have a strategy, we know that the enemy is going to try to rob us of our joy keep us silent and not praise him, and make us think he isn't good, but he is good, and he will release power if we trust in him and his truth rather than us and what we're feeling or thinking at the moment. Well, the other thing that happens when we're in conflict is that we think that the only way we can achieve victory over this is by a way that we can see something that we think that we can do. And if we trust in God, as he showed us through so many examples in the Old Testament, he can cause our enemies or those that we're in conflict with to end up just destroying one another. And he makes it happen completely apart from any way that we could possibly have foreseen. And I think if we together are in unity, even on something, we had something yesterday that we are totally disunited on. (laughs) If we would just get on our knees and pray and see maybe God has another way out, rather than us coming up with a solution, we have to sacrifice our way for His way. Thank you for listening to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. You can visit Dr. Ed Delf at nationstrategy.com. And for Alan and Polly Heller, head over to walkandtalk.org. On the website, you'll be able to order the Learning How to Trust book, along with the newly revised application guide. You can also schedule a personal coaching session, a one-on-one counseling session, and register for one of Alan's upcoming webinars. On behalf of Alan, Polly, and Ed, Thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week. There's a place where mercy
Heart and Soul Gospel Broadcast through apps or podcasts on your smartphone. If you're an iPhone user, go to the App Store and download Heart and Soul. If you possess an Android phone, you can download it in the Play Store in the same way. Podcast users can download by searching Heart and Soul Broadcast in the search box. It also provides you with distinct broadcasts for children's program. By searching Heart and Soul Kids in the podcast, you can directly log on to the broadcast for children's program. For more information, please call and tag the office at 602-866-8999. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is training and preparation. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. 
Well, I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In our modern uh, version of the Olympic Games, we have what kind of medals? We have a gold, we have a silver, and a bronze, like a first, second, and third place. But in these ancient games, guys, there was no first, second, third place. You either won or you lost. It was all about focusing your attention because there weren't second and third place. There was one winner. And so you were running to win that race. You were running for the honor of your God, for the honor of your family, and for personally the maybe fleeting moment of fame that you would have. Participation, one, wasn't enough. It was all about winning the race. Ancient writers, you've probably heard of Homer's The Odyssey, in that ancient poem story, he, he says this, there is no greater fame for a man that which he wins with his footwork. In other words, he's saying there's no greater fame you could ever have like winning a race. You know, when a team member wins the Super Bowl, each member is given a ring. This last year, the ring's were valued at $36,500, the value of that ring for all the, you know, every team member giving that. Three things at the same time, and it, like, I'm thinking, horse wrestling, that's not right. My second thought is, how stupid, are you going to make another mistake like that? And the third thing says, stick to the notes. So I'm going, you got to remember, these things are all going to sometimes... Those three tracks aren't in stereo. They start, you know, messing, they run together. So the ancient winners, they didn't get a Super Bowl ring. They didn't get any monetary uh, reward. What they ran for, what they were sweating for, what they trained for for years was for the Isthmian crown. These games had a crown. Now, don't think of crown like Queen of England. This is the crown. It was a wreath of parsley. Kind of underwhelming, don't you think? A parsley wreath. That represented the glory, the honor. That was the goal. All the blood, sweat, and tears, so to speak, was for a wreath of parsley. Now, Paul liked to use athletic images and often use them as a metaphor for the things that he's writing about, to help us understand things. And, and he uses metaphors, uh, probably he was in boxing he talks about. No, he does not talk about boxing, wrestling, running. And so with the background that we have, understanding what's happening, these famous games happening just outside Corinth, let's look at what he says now. Chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Here is what Paul wants us to know, guys. God wants us to know 
that we are all in the race. Every single one of us are all in the race. Paul compares our journey of faith to the Olympic race. The message paraphrases what Paul said this way. You've all seen the stadium. You've all been to the stadium and seen the athletes race. Everyone runs, one wins. Run to win. All good athletes train hard. They do it for a gold medal that tarnishes and fades. You're after one that's gold eternally. Interesting, a nice paraphrase of what Paul is saying. A lot of people live vicariously through sports. Maybe you do. You know, you've got that guy, you know, who's, who's your hero of the team. Or, you know, you wanted to play. Maybe you were in college and you had that opportunity. You thought you were going to go professional or something like that, and it just didn't happen. You could have injured yourself. Maybe you, you like, you were a soccer, crazy soccer fan, and, you know, you played up until, you know, you had some injury. Now you can't, but you love to watch the sport, kind of put yourself in it. You're living vicariously through that. Nothing wrong with that, but the Christian race can't be run vicariously. It's pretty clear that there are no spectators. You're in the race, and the person that's in the stands watching is Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we've got to run the race of faith as diligently as the runner of the race that we're reading about here. And Paul is very clear that the race is worth all the effort that's required. Life's a race to be run. The first principle of running well is training. That's kind of basic in every area of life. If you want to be good at something, you've got to train. You got to practice. You got to study. You got to learn. If you want to be a doctor, you've got to go to years and years of university, then medical school, then internship and all, and then you graduate and you still practice. That's what they say. This is wrong. You know, why do you all this school and you graduate and doctors still practice? It's wrong, you know? Or you want to be a lawyer, you want to be a mechanic, you want to be a contractor, or you want to be a social worker, whatever you might want to be, you got to work. And you got to work hard. You got to study. You got to practice. You want to be your best. I'm always happy when I go to a restaurant or a doctor's office and I see framed a certificate that says the best of. How about you? The best of. Well, that's cool. I always feel like, oh, I chose the right one, right? It's like a grade A restaurant. Who wants to walk in the door and it's a grade C, right? It's like, uh, I know the alphabet, and I know this isn't where I want to be. So we, I'm, I see the best of. Somebody has said, I mean, that it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert at something, whatever it is, to become an expert at it. Best of have put in their time, and they're winners. I want to ask you a question. Is your life the best of? Are you the best of what you could be right now? Paul, in this passage, uses the example of an athlete in training for the Olympics because of the intense commitment that the athletes had to own. The intense commitment that they were involved in, they gave themselves completely to their sport, training their minds, their bodies for excellence. 
spending the mornings, the afternoons, working, 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 denying themselves, staying fit, working for a better time, working for you know, a higher goal every time. You know, that's a commitment they were putting into it. And Paul is saying, I want you to do the same thing. Recently, I read a fable about a dog who loved to chase other animals. And he bragged about his great running skill, and he said that he could catch anything. And one day, it wasn't long, that uh, his claim was put to the test by a rabbit. And the rabbit said, you can't catch me. Boaz just discovered rabbits, all right? We now have rabbits inhabiting our backyard, and uh, they kind of hop around here and there. And um, he's not, or was ever tuned in anything like that until one day I opened the slider door for him to go out, and there's a rabbit. And they're like, eye to eye. And rabbit, like, if I stand still, you won't see me. Don't, isn't that what they do? And it's like, come on, you're right there in plain sight. No, I'm not. Can't see me. Anyway, that cracks me up. That has nothing to do with anything either. Boaz, he saw that, and then, man, it was like, oh, he goes barking after the rabbit, and the rabbit, you know. It, there's no competition. The rabbit beats him. But now, whenever we let open the door in the morning, man, the first thing, Boaz just runs out, and he's barking, whether he sees anything or not. He's just going to chase the rabbit that's not there. But going back to our story, the rabbit just outran the dog, you know, and the dog. So the people, the other animals were looking at the the dog, and, and what they just laughed at the dog, and the dog excused himself by saying, you forget, I was only running for fun. He was running for his life. <laughs> that does make a difference, right? Motivation is the most important factor in everything we do. And in a sense, like that rabbit, we're running for our lives as well. Not to save our lives, but to secure a reward when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is talking about. The reward, you know, as I've studied this text, you know, I look at what other people say. I don't mind, you know, reading other Bible teachers and commentators. Why would I not want to stand on the shoulders of, of others, you know, and learn what they, what they say? But some of them I read, I'm like absolutely disagreeing with. Some people say the reward, the crown that Paul is talking about here is eternal life. So we're running the race, we're running the race, so that hopefully we'll get eternal life when we cross the finish line. I'm going to say that is absolutely wrong, okay? Because eternal life is not the reward for anything. Eternal life, through the Bible spoken, as a what, gang? Gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is like the classic verse for that, for by grace are you saved through faith, and the faith isn't even of your own. It is a what? Of God. Gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God says, I don't want you boasting, saying, oh man, I got into heaven because, you know, my time was really good. I ran the race. No. Eternal life is a gift. So Paul isn't talking about running this race in order to get eternal life. Are we all on the same page here? We're not talking about eternal life. That's not the motivation for running this race. You know, in fact, according to the games of the ancient Olympics, you couldn't even be in the competition unless you were a Greek citizen. 
You couldn't, you didn't even qualify to get in. You had to be a citizen first. And so what's the Bible telling us? Paul is basically saying, you know what? He says, you can't even be in this race I'm talking about unless you're saved. You're not in the race to qualify. You're qualified because you are a citizen. And Paul says to the Philippian Christians, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. Amen? And you see, being saved is not the goal of the race. Being saved qualifies you to be in the race. Eternal life is not the prize that we're competing for. What motivates us to train is the prospect of eternal reward from Jesus. I want you to look at what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says. Paul's talking about what is going to happen when we die. We are with the Lord, and he's writing to the same folks, to the Corinthians. And he says, I want you to read with me. I don't care the translation, 2 Corinthians 5.10, and read it good and loud. Okay, here we go. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the reason we're running to win the race, because it's pretty clear what he's saying. He's saying, we all are going to stand before Jesus someday. We all. Now, if you die, you immediately, after you die, you go and you're standing for the judgment seat of Christ. Now, if you're alive at the rapture, you're going to be caught up, and you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every single one of us. Now, Realize there's two places of judgment. One is the great white throne judgment that you believers will never be at. You can watch it, but you won't be in it because that will be a judgment of works for salvation and the wicked will be in that. And God will say, hey, you didn't believe in my sense and now you're standing in your own good or bad works and you're losers. You didn't believe in my son. That's the great white throne judgment. You'll watch it, but you won't be in that. Hooray, amen, right? Thank you, Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. Now, though, the judgment seat of Christ is a whole different thing. The judgment seat of Christ, as our scripture says, is where we will stand before the Lord. Now, judgment seat, let me tell you something. The word judgment seat is the word bima, and it means a raised platform. I'm standing on a bima right now. That's what this is. If you go to a synagogue today, and the place that's raised up, they have the desk, and they roll out the scrolls, and they read from the Torah, that place where you go up, it's called the bima in a synagogue. So it's a raised place. But in, in our context... With the games, the judgment seat, the bima is where the judges sat and they would judge the races and give rewards. So this all has to do with our race. We're going to die and when we stand before Jesus, he's going to say, hey, I've been watching your race. Now, this is the prize I'm going to give you or not give you. I want to remind you that we are not competing against each other. Your race has nothing to do with my race, and my race has nothing to do with yours. God isn't comparing me to you or you to me. It's one-on-one, no team sports. 
It's us and God watching. Us and running. Us in our race. And Jesus giving the rewards. You say, well, I don't know. Rewards don't mean anything to me. I'm not serving Christ for rewards. Well, Jesus wants you to serve him for rewards. Listen, I can't get around what Jesus said about rewards. He says, you do this and I will reward you. You do that and I will reward you. Obviously, by the way, he says more about rewards than anyone else in the scripture. Obviously, Jesus says, clue up, gang, I want you, clue in, gang, I want you to know that rewards are important. See, I think it's going to be part of the enjoyment of heaven. We say, well, won't it be like everybody enjoying heaven the same? Look, there are better theologians than me in our church, all right? So I will defer to them, but I'm going to go ahead and put this out. I'm going to say that based on what the Bible says about rewards, that there may be levels of enjoyment. I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that you could, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you might be ashamed. You might be super ashamed. And Jesus may say, remember, he's supposed to say, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Well done, faithful. What would he say if you're not a faithful servant? Well, he won't say, well done. You're still in heaven. But there might be shame. You know what? There might be tears. You say, no more tears. Yeah, no more tears. But you might enter into heaven, and it's a sad thing when you enter into heaven and you don't have reward. And we'll talk more about reward some weeks from now, but I just want you to understand that they mean a lot, and you're going to need them as part of your worship experience in heaven. It's going to be an important thing. So Jesus says, I want to motivate you. And we can't hear well done unless we well do. Would you agree? We're not going to hear well done, good and faithful servant, unless we're well doing right now. Now, you know what? My motivation is, yes, loving Jesus. That is my motivation. He saved me. He died for me. I want to serve him. We love him because he first loved us. So you're with me there. But I love the Jesus who tells me, I want you to do this, and I'm going to reward you for it. It's important to Jesus that he rewards us. It's important. Now, hey, the way this looks, too, is I'm thinking, well, you know, who gives me the power to do anything to be rewarded? Jesus. So it's kind of like the little kid that wants to get daddy a Christmas present, but he has no income, right? So you give him the 10 bucks or the 20 bucks, and he says, okay, go ahead, get daddy a, get daddy a present. So you know, then he brings it to you, and you're excited, right? But who gave him the power, the opportunity, the resources to get the gift, right? And mom probably helped him even choose the gift, right? It's that way with the Lord. He gives us the power, the resources, the strength, but he still wants us to go and do, and he'll reward us, you know, even though it's all about him and his work, but he still wants us to do. You understand? It's important. Eternal reward. That's my motivation. That's what the Lord said ought to be our motivation for serving him. And we're not running for some parsley crown. We're running for an imperishable crown. As we stand someday before the judgment seat of Christ. 
If these athletes were so ready to work so hard for something that you know would dry up in like three days, how much more we ought to be motivated to live and serve the Lord and realize this is my point today is to realize that you are in the race. You all, we all are in the race. And you know, we've got to do something. If we're going to run the race, we've got to know where we're going. We've got to perceive. We've got to get focused. Paul says, they, talking about these athletes, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable. Imperishable is talking about eternal, everlasting. Eternity is what is in view here. Eternity is like incomprehensible to me. You know, for me, I have like this dot and then a line that goes just forever. That's kind of the way I think of eternity. It's just like, and our time right now is so short. It's so short to do something. Go back to a thought. Is it okay with you guys? Let me go back to something. I want you, here we are in 2 Corinthians 5. I want you to look at chapter 4. I want to say something. It's, the Lord just puts it on my heart right now. You say, I am going through such tough times right now. I don't think I can even run the race. There's no reward for me. I'm glad we stopped. You need to hear something, and I believe it's from the Lord. You need to hear right now, if you're suffering for Jesus, there is a reward even in that. If you are faithful right now in your suffering, for some it's the marriage, the family's fallen apart, yet you're staying steadfast with Jesus, you've lost your job, you're staying steadfast for Jesus, you've heard you have cancer, but you're staying steadfast for Jesus. Listen, there's a reward in that. How do you know that? Let me show you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Verse 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He's talking about reward from God. And it says our momentary light affliction is producing. What do you mean my momentary light? I've been going through this for 10 years. God is not making light of what you're going through. God is saying in the light of eternity, come on, keep things in perspective. In the light of eternity, this is momentary and light, right? Compared to what the load of glory you're going to have, this is light. But I want you to see the encouragement in here. I want you, you're dealing with depression. I want you to see right here. The Lord sees you. The Lord sees your faithfulness. The Lord sees you fighting through that, staying strong. The Lord sees you in his word, depending on his Holy Spirit. Hey, there's reward for you. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying. Hope you're hearing what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and that you receive his comfort and know that, you know, sometimes it's hard to just, you know, in a race, you know, sometimes you've run so hard and maybe your pace is not right. I don't know, in a race, you stop and you got a cramp or you throw up. But you know what? You don't walk off. You get back up and if it's just 
one foot in front of the other. You're moving forward, and it's your race. It's not mine. No, you're not being judged against anybody else. And Jesus is cheering you on. He's in the stands. And if we, your brothers and sisters, knew what we were going through, we're cheering you on too. Because we see your race, and we want you to press on and win that race. So be encouraged. Okay, do you hear that? Hear that. Receive that. So we got to perceive. I'm going to go back to where I left off before we shared that. We need to perceive where we're going. We need to, to realize this, this is eternity that we're talking about. There were these two gas company servicemen. One was a senior training man, supervisor, and the other was a young trainee, and they were out checking meters. They, they parked their truck at the beginning of this long alley. It was a dead-end alley, and they worked their way from one side down to, you know, they were checking the meters. They finally got to the end of the alley, and at last uh, house, a lady was looking out of her kitchen window, and she watched the two guys as they were checking her gas meter. And as they finished checking her meter, the older guy he said, you know, he was thinking, you know, this young guy, you know, I still got on him. So he challenged the younger guy for a race, see who could get back to the truck at the beginning of the alley the fastest. So they tore off and they were just running like crazy. And uh, then they realized as, as they just about got to the truck, they realized that this lady was running after them, huffing and puffing and running. And they stopped and they said, what's wrong? What's going on? And she says, when I see two gas men running at full speed away from my house, I figured I'd better get out of there too. The lady suddenly realized that she better get into the race. Amen. You've got to get it into your mind to get into the race yourself. How can we expect to hear well done unless we have done something, right? We need to well do. We can't settle down and watch other people run from the sidelines. God isn't saying, oh, bring a sign and shout for your team. God isn't saying, buy season tickets. God isn't saying, show up at the games. God is saying, get in the race. It's all about you getting in the race. We don't have like the option, we're in the race. Now roll, run. To accomplish this, you gotta start preparing. Years ago, a coach from the University of Indiana said, the will to succeed is important, but what is more important is the will to prepare. The message paraphrases verses 26 and 27 of 1 Corinthians 9. I don't know about you, but I'm running hard for the finish line. I'm giving it everything I've got. No sloppy living for me. I'm staying alert and on top condition. I'm not going to get caught napping, telling everybody else about it, and then missing out myself. The key here is self-discipline. The athletes that competed in these games had to be able to prove that they'd been in training for 10 months before the games. And then 30 days before the games, they had to prove that they'd been in the gym for 30 days before the games. They had to take it seriously. They had to show that they had self-discipline. No one would receive the prize if they weren't seriously training. 
Paul had the goal in front of him. The goal was to finish the race, to receive the reward, to finish strong. He says to us, you're in the race, you're running the race, keep your eye on the goal. Hey, the motive is not to get saved. The motive is you are saved and you want to do everything that you can to please Jesus. And in the end, in heaven, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. I want to hear that. How about you guys? And I'm going to run my race, and I know you're going to run your race. Again, it's not comparing you or the person next to you or you and me. We're all in our own lane, all right? And it's us and Jesus, and he is cheering you on, all right? So maybe for you, the exhortation right now is, hey, I got it. I've been sitting, and I need to get back in my race. For some of you, it's encouragement, like, I don't know if I can go another foot. Well, you know what? Maybe you need to, to, to just slow down and, and look to the Savior. Part of the prep, you know, is Bible study. It's fellowship. It's prayer. Part of the training is, is we meet together and, and we're encouraging one another along in, in our races. And so I'm glad to see you. I'm glad to hear that you are excited about your race, like you've just said. You want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And if you finish your race strong, you're going to hear that. And there's stuff for you when you appear before Jesus. We're going to spend more time over the next weeks talking about winning our race, okay? Running this race to win. Win the race. And we're going to see that. We're going to see God prepping us for that. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation that we have and that you have placed us in this race. Thank you that we qualify. Thank you that you have given us a savior, the one who is standing in front of us, cheering us on, saying, come on, come on, you can do it. Come on, I'll give you the power. I'll give you the strength. Thank you that it is your desire to see us press forward. And we want to do that. Comfort those who need that word of comfort today. Lord, exhort, use your word now to exhort those who need to be exhorted and, and maybe some, Lord, that just needed to kind of be, you know, picked up and say, hey, you need to start doing what is right. Wherever we're on that spectrum, we thank you that you care enough to speak to us. And we thank you through Jesus and his name. And everybody said, amen.
now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.